Hello everyone, uh, welcome to Sign for Uncut. Yeah, this is the first episode where we have guests. We plan to talk about, you know, developer tools and people who are making it and about people who are, you know, helping developers to, you know, embrace those tools. My name is Darko Fabian and today I have Eddie Zinski from DigitalOcean with us. So thanks so much for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me, Darko. Okay, so Eddie, feel free to introduce yourself. Cool. Uh, so like Darko said, my name is Eddie Zineski, and I serve the developer community at a company called DigitalOcean. Uh, DigitalOcean, if you're not familiar, we are a cloud provider. We've got everything you need to you know, deploy, scale, and build the cool things that you're working on. Uh, you might be very familiar with us from our tutorials that might have saved your ass on GitHub, I mean, uh, on Google search at some point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so thankfully, we've reached lots of developers and get a lot of loving feedback from the community. So we've got a good team working on that. Yeah, great. Oh, and, I, and I'm based out of Denver, Colorado in the United States right now. Yeah, so when you touched upon that topic, I saw a tweet uh, on your Twitter stream with, you know, all climbing gear, you know, on your back and hanging from your vest. And uh, <laughs> so maybe you can, you know, tell us a bit about uh, your hobby and uh, how did you got into that? Yeah, so I used to live in Brooklyn, New York, and one of my friends invited me to go to a climbing gym one time. I think it was 2014 or 2015. Uh, and I fell in love with it. It was pretty awesome. So I started climbing a lot more in the gym, eventually worked my way outdoors, started climbing some mountains. I didn't realize till I was you know, pretty deep into this climbing hobby uh, that it is a very stereotypical thing for a developer to be into uh, <laughs> because it's, all, it's very technical, right? These things go into the rock to save my ass from falling. And uh, it's very hands-on, it's very technical, and it's a lot of problem-solving, right? So it turns out developers gravitate towards climbing, uh, so I played myself into another stereotype, which is fine. Um, <laughs> but I, I recently moved out here to Colorado back in November because the mountains are so much bigger. So my wife and I hopped in the car, we drove the three days with our dog. We've been climbing big mountains since we got here, so love doing it. <laughs> Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those categories where it's obviously high on your priority list. You know, you're <laughs> moving because of that. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that's great. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, uh, I was never into sports before. So this was the first time that I was doing anything physical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, to be honest, I'm in the same category of like not much sports. But during college, I got into hiking. Uh, oh, yeah. So, yeah, that is probably in that, you know, stereotypical, you know, developer <laughs> maybe thing. I don't know. Okay, so great start. Um, so let's move to the business area. <laughs> <laughs> so in that developer relationship area, I was looking around preparing for an interview and I saw that on uh, one of DigitalOcean YouTube channels, you gave a fantastic sum up in a couple of minutes about you know developer relationships and so on. And yeah, to be honest, that's one of the best essentials that I heard about it. So maybe you can just quickly repeat that for us. So yeah, we are up sure. to speed with that. So I like to describe developer relations. People hate when I say this, but at the root of it, it's marketing for developers. Developers have you know, a strong shield and a wall that goes up whenever they're talking to someone, salesy or marketing or, or just even non-technical in general. And it makes a lot of sense, right? As a developer, you want to talk to other developers. And so the, this grassroots movement of like having developers who enjoy talking to other developers is a great way to build trust and relationships with your brand, with your company. I always say that technical credibility is everything, right? It's very important that you know what you're talking about and can back it up. 
because as soon as you you know let shed any type of like chink in your armor of you know being a, a technical developer folks will write you off as a marketer and they don't really want to talk to you anymore so it's pretty great to be able to you know engage communities and help folks out you know with their first journey to the cloud a handful of different stuff so i've been doing devrel since the early days when i used to work at a company called sengrid and i've loved it ever since yeah. So yeah, I want to ask about that. So it's like a specific set of skills that you need to have. So you need to be kind of very hands-on and you say, you know, you have to have that great technical knowledge. But on the other hand, you have to be into that, you know, talking with people, you know, engage with community in a broader sense. So how did you got attracted to that? Was it like natural that from your developer job, you ended up doing that or how it came about? That's a great question. So we always say, after Sengrid, I went to a company called Twilio. And so that's where I learned a lot from a great man named Rob Spector. And so we would say that qualities that make a good developer, advocate, or evangelist is the head of a hacker and the heart of a teacher, right? And so being able to empathize with other developers. So I guess my story starts, you know, I was in high school, you know, figuring out what the heck I wanted to do with my life. I was always good at math and it's like, okay, you know, maybe I'll be a math teacher because I guess that's what people who are good at math do. Mm -hmm. So I went to school for math education. I was in an accelerated master's program, and then I started student teaching, and I just, I hated it. It was just not fun. I was working with some freshmen, I think, teaching Algebra 1, and, you know, the, the common phrase came up of like, oh, when am I ever going to use this? When am I ever going to need this? Yeah. And, you know, you want to say like, oh, the smart kids are going to use it. But you can't say that, obviously, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And so I just I couldn't see myself doing and teaching something that I enjoyed so much to folks who really didn't care about it. And so at the same time, I had to take an intro to programming class for my major. And my dad is an old school COBOL DB2 Fortran developer back in the IBM mainframe days. And so I just, you know, I, I never thought I'd be doing nerdy computer stuff like my dad. And uh, <laughs> okay. so my first intro to programming class, I fell in love with it, right? It was the coolest thing I'd ever done. Uh, I was never creative, so I hated art class and that kind of stuff. But, you know, being able to print out Hello World for the first time on the screen was just like, it blew my mind. It was the first time that I could do something that, you know, didn't really, it didn't look like crap and I was proud of it. So fast forward, I switch to computer science. I wind up landing an internship at SendGrid doing DevOps because mm -hmm. I had always been interested in, you know, like Linux systems. Then summer ends and I stay on the team while I finish school. And I'm going to a lot of hackathons. I'm going to a lot of meetups. I'm going to conferences. And I keep seeing the, the SendGrid DevRel team around. And they're like, hey, like, you know, you really enjoy doing this kind of stuff and working with the community. Why don't you just join our team and you get paid to do this kind of stuff? It's like, oh, that sounds great, you know, sign me up. Yeah. Uh, so that's really how I wound up in DevRel. And I think it's a mixture of, you know, I I wanted to be a teacher, so I still get to work with people who want to learn. And they actually, they want to learn. That's the difference there, right? Mm -hmm. And what I realized at the end of it was I didn't care too much about math. I like problem solving. And that's what programming lets you do on a daily basis. So it kind of like the perfect storm, all my pieces came together. And uh, I'm pretty stoked with how things have worked out so far. Yeah, this is the much better story that I expected to hear. I imagine that there will be like, you know, some changes, you know, because, you know, there is no school for development relationships and so on. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, very interesting how it came about. I tell people the missing piece of the puzzle for me. So right after I left doing math education, I went to a community college 
and I was doing my associates in computer science. I had to repeat a lot of courses. And the ironic thing about community college is there's a giant lack of community, right? Everyone shows up, they hate each other, and they go home. And so <laughs> when I finished my associates, I transferred to a four-year school to finish my bachelor's, and that was my missing piece. The community at Rutgers where I went, the Rutgers hacker community is very well known for you know, getting together. We had a computer lab called The Cave where we would hang out and build cool things. And so that is like what really sealed the deal was, you know, having a supporting community that taught me about the broader world and then being able to give back. So yeah. That, that is my school for DevRel. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting about this, sorry, math to development and, you know, teaching together. Uh, yeah, <laughs> great. In that DevRel world, there are more medias than ever, you know, mediums that you can use. So, you know, from Twitter, you know, blogging, um, live streaming that you're doing right now is huge, podcasting also, all that. So from your experience and maybe even biases, where do you maybe uh, dedicate more of your time and energy and what is maybe uh, more successful in these terms? So going somewhere live, spending time with people, engaging with them online, how do you balance that? Yeah, so people describe DevRel different ways, like I mentioned. Uh, one of the things that's always stuck out to me is these three pillars that we call the three Cs, code, content, and community. And you know, code is working with sample apps, GitHub projects, open source projects, quick starts, that kind of stuff. Content is you know, blog posts online, preparing in-person talks and workshops. And the community is you know, going to places and actually evangelizing, so building relationships with people, um, maybe working with students at a code school, that kind of different stuff. So those are the three things that most people focus on. Generally, people gravitate towards two of those. So for myself, mm -hmm. I generally like doing code in community. Content, I like speaking. So I'll give talks when, you know, when I can find the time there. But I, I just hate writing. I always hated writing, even in school. It was, you know, I'd wait till the last minute to start that 10-page essay I had to do. And But that's when I got my best focus. So... Yeah, I'm just, I'm not a writer. <laughs> yeah, I feel you completely on writing. <laughs> and we have a question here. So it says uh, in the area of the holy grail of marketing of uh, developers, or it is about technical credibility and being a devil's advocate inside the company. <laughs> okay, you partly answered that, but yeah, if you want to maybe extend a bit on that, feel free to. Yeah. So there's a difference between developer evangelism and developer advocacy. And I'm not one for titles at all, mm -hmm. but the real like TLDR is that evangelism is generally a lot more in person, right? It's a lot more in person working with developers, like actually going where developers live and gather. And then advocacy generally is more about enabling developers, right? It's about enabling them through quick starts and, you know, online documentation and those kinds of things. So engagement versus enablement. That's one of the big distinctions that I've always seen. So when you're approaching DevRel for a, you know, a software product, you need to think, how would you best benefit? Both sides you know, can contribute feedback back to the, you know, the product team and the engineering teams. Um, it's actually one of the most important parts about DevRel is you know, being out in the field working with folks who give you direct product feedback. You know, people pay for that kind of research you know, by having... <laughs> People go out and gather product feedback. So having people out there doubling as community and relationship builders while getting you know valuable product feedback is great. And so you know it's, it's a lot about surfacing that up to the you know the rest of the org, helping to influence the product. 
and really like being a voice for developers inside the organization, right? And that's where a lot of this whole thing comes together. And so I guess the answer to the question is, you know, it's it's not a holy grail because it's definitely, I've definitely seen it done, you know, and implemented not the best. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've seen some pretty good teams. Uh, you know, I, I still think that the Twilio team is definitely the best DevRel team out there right now. And I learned a lot from them. But you have to have the right attitude, right? Like creating a DevRel team isn't magically going to bring you more developers. It's not going to turn your relationship around if you have a south one. It's going to take a lot of work by a lot of people. I like to use PayPal as an example there. Um, PayPal used to be a pretty you know, despised brand amongst developers. You used to just not enjoy working with PayPal. They had, you know, they didn't have the best documentation. They didn't have the best reputation. So PayPal built a pretty big developer relations team. And they started, have you ever heard of the PayPal battle hacks? Uh, no, no. But I heard so, about pain stories about using PayPal as integration. <laughs> yeah, so I have so a bad PayPal, side of the story, yeah. Right. So they built, a, they built a big DevRel team and they started putting on these battle hacks, which I think they had 12 different hackathons throughout the world. So they had some out in the UK, just everywhere, right? And out in Tel Aviv. So, But they they were just like the most glorious uh, implementation of a hackathon ever, right? They had like ice sculptures and they had, <laughs> you know, massages throughout the whole thing that you could go get a massage when you're tired. But it's not the grand gestures. It's all the work that was put in to really turn the reputation around. And PayPal, when the team was team you know recently got disbanded out there but when the team was at its peak like people loved paypal like they were excited to go to paypal events because they were so glorious right but that took a lot of work and a lot of time by folks to turn that reputation around and so it's not like i said it's not a magic bullet it's not a holy grail you have to actually like dedicate the time and resources and commit to doing it the right way yeah in terms of those investments it also depends on the size of a company and the team as you said, for PayPal, they put together quite a big team. There is that tipping point, you know, how much do we have to invest in something? If you invest, you know, if you don't invest enough, it will not tip over and, you know, it will not be successful. Yeah, and you, you already touched upon uh, a question that I wanted to ask. And that's about, you know, someone from the DevRel team actually bringing, you know, the information back to the product team. So I want to, you know, go ahead with maybe a concrete question. Can you give us an example where something, some piece of information you brought back, you know, to a product team, they embraced it, you know, and it was like a feedback loop that was closed. What would be an example of that? Yeah, so I'll give you two. Uh, so when I was at SendGrid, we had a monthly DevRel product meeting where, we would gather and compile all the feedback and work with the person in charge of product to prioritize the community requests and kind of surface up like what the most important easy wins were for the community. Yep. Uh, and so a lot of changes came directly out of that. Sangrid at one point implemented API keys because that was something that people really wanted, you know, before they had just had usernames and passwords. And so that was a very, you know, strongly requested feature from the community and eventually got implemented. At Twilio, over the many years of, you know, people before I even joined the team doing a lot of hard work, they built a very strong relationship with the product team. And so whenever a product was, you know, ready to launch or open up or even give like early customers access to it, they would come to the DevRel team and be like, hey, here's what we built. You know, it's very rough right now. Could you, you guys like take a day and just do like an internal hackathon on the product? And 
that was the best thing you can imagine, right? Like the product team coming to you with something like as soon as they can get someone's hands on it, they want your hands on it. And they are like listening to you all day while you build and implement something cool with this thing. And so we did that for almost every product that came out of Twilio. And the thing with that is that's earned and that's, you have to earn that respect and build that relationship. So that's what I definitely aspire to do here still at DigitalOcean. Yeah, those connections are powerful. In our example, like collaboration between customer success. So in our case, you know, most of the talking that we do is with existing customers. There is also that kind of a magical moment when you're coming from some of those, you know, uh, meetings with, with customers to, you know, speaking with developers and, you know, kind of bringing in most cases, just the good news, you know, people love this, that, you know, this guy made or this person made. That feedback is pretty magical. Um, it's hard, right? Because you have a roadmap already laid out. And how do you prioritize, you know, the stuff you want to build as a product team versus the stuff your customers want? You probably know that better than I do. Yeah, yeah. Well, what is good for us that uh, we have those quarterly plans. We end up, you know, putting those in a gun chart, you know, so this will take this long and we will do this and this. You know, in the end of the quarter, we, you know, we are happy if we do, you know, 60% of that 70, but we're even more happier if, you know, some things that people requested that we haven't even thought that's very important were implemented along the way. Being flexible there is very important and being able to react quickly to what customers ask, then they appreciate that a lot. Unfortunately, it's one of the hardest things to do, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, not to blow up your, your timeline, but yeah, it's a great feeling when you do that. So moving on, maybe closer to technology. So this idea for this call and everything came uh, like earlier this year, maybe in the beginning of the year. So I was doing some hands-on demos, deploying something from Semaphore to Kubernetes clusters. And I think I started with DigitalOcean actually. And then I also deployed to Google Cloud and AWS. And yeah, I have to give you a, a shout out to your guys because... You know, the experience of setting up Kubernetes cluster on DigitalOcean, you know, the speed that it could happen, and also the amount of, you know, brain power that I have to put in was very, you know, <laughs> very, very small. So that was like an amazing experience. And then we connected somehow on Twitter. I, I don't remember exactly how. It was a huge difference, maybe, you know, comparing AWS to DigitalOcean, you know, to get that Kubernetes cluster up and running. So it was night and day. For me, so I'm sure that AWS was going to improve that, but maybe just one component in time. How much do I have to wait to get that cluster, you know, up and running? Was a big difference. So I, I wanted to ask about, you know, core principles and values that are the culture in DigitalOcean, because I know the company. Probably I discovered the company from tutorials, as you already mentioned. <laughs> but whenever I touched any of the products, it was so easy to use. So I wanted to ask, how is that culture shaped and what are the principles that you stand for when you end up, you know, coming out with those products that are so easy to use? It's always like three clicks away, you get what you want and you're never lost or confused. So if you can maybe share with us a bit about that. Totally. So we, I first want to give a shout out. We have a, we had a great team that built the first iteration of that Kubernetes platform. I think it was built by like three or four or five people. Uh, plus a designer and a product manager, right? Like they blew it out of the water. Some of the best engineers I've worked with. And uh, so I'll make sure to let them know the kind yeah. words you said. Please do. Uh, but we have, a, we have a philosophy where we don't really want to approach a product if we don't think we can do it 
better and easier or simpler than what's out there, right? So we focus on very clean, easy to use UIs and APIs. When we approach Kubernetes, like we felt all those pain points, right? So I think Dio's been running Kubernetes in production for three and a half, four years now. We were very early days when we first picked it up and started running with it. Back then, there was no concept of a deployment or anything, right? Like you had to do a lot of stuff by hand, create replica sets, create pods. And the team over the years of using it internally also had pain points. They also had things that they you know, wanted to improve and make life easier. Obviously, deploying Kubernetes manually was a very hard and you know, challenging thing to do. So all those years of us running it and struggling and you know, learning from the best practices in the community and some other folks who've done things better than we could, that all went into the product that we built. Right? And so I like to think about, you know, DigitalOcean has always had a very minimal offering, right? Like it's always been like servers, storage, and networking. And a lot of that has grown out of the you know, very recent past couple of years. But our foundation was always our droplets, right? Like we built a very strong and solid compute layer. And it was just very, that's where we put all of our time and effort into. It was like making sure our servers were the best that they could be. You know, not to put AWS down or anything, but if you look at over the past 10 years or so of all the different products that AWS has put out, right? Elastic Beanstalk, a bunch of other bits that they built full products to auto scale to do, you know, specialized logging and monitoring and that kind of stuff. We lucked out. We didn't compete with them for years on product roadmap for any of that stuff. We focused on the core compute unit and then Kubernetes comes along and it gives you all of that for free out of the box. Right. <laughs> so it was like it was just like a Hail Mary that we threw that we had no idea would, you know, yeah. be a Hail Mary. But thankfully like our Kubernetes product is built right on top of that strong compute unit. Right. So Coupled with like not competing for you know ten years with products that Kubernetes gives you for free, I'm really glad that we embrace Kubernetes fully. Whether or not the Kubernetes is what everyone's going to be talking about and using in two years, five years, the concept of thinking about your resources as a cluster instead of individual servers. Right? I talk about this when I give workshops. Like, who cares if you know in the back in the day you had to have Web server zero one, web server zero yeah. two, right? Now it doesn't matter. You just have a giant pool of resources in the cloud and you let some tool carve that up like Tetris in building blocks and place and run those for you. And I think that concept is what's here to stay. Just like when people were talking about React, you know, like React really changed the game in the client side JavaScript world, but the concepts of like immutable representation of your view and passing data in that flows and hoisting your state to the highest thing, right? We have Vue that actually came out, Vue.js, um, a bunch of other libraries. So, you know, people were saying the same thing about React, like whether or not people are going to be using React in five years, that doesn't matter. Like the concepts that it brought and shared to the community are what's going to stick around. And, and I see that happening right now with Kubernetes. Coming back to the ease of use that you mentioned and your team that used Kubernetes for a while made what they what they wanted. When I use you know some product and when I have to spend a lot of time in figuring things out, I feel that it's not empowering me. It's like you know making me ask myself, am I smart enough to do this? And when you use a product where you feel a completely different way, so you know a few clicks, you know, and Huawei has now this you know superpower that I can just you know deploy now. That's a completely different story. Yeah, the, what you touched upon Kubernetes. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting how pieces fall into place. 
And I mean, for, for us, uh, yeah, I have to say, Semaphore was never like, you know, more stable. So there are many components to it, why it happened, you know. We learned a lot over the years. We rewrote some things, you know, a couple of times and so on. But not having that, you know, I have this server 001, 002 and so on. And knowing that I have five instances, but I don't know how many instances we have now in Kubernetes cluster. And it's like more stable than ever, you yeah. know. And uh, it really shows that uh, there are, you know, many, many engineering hours, you know, and, uh, you know, years and years of experience that Google built into that and kind of shared with the world. And, uh, yeah, it sounds great how you benefited from that, but other public providers also, because it's you know, competing now with AWS in that area is like a completely different game. Whenever I hear uh, something uh, coming from, you know, CNCF Foundation and the brands that I see there, so I see kind of, uh, you know, Alliance on one side and AWS on the other side, <laughs> and how they are, you know, united uh, on one side. Yeah, we are all going to benefit from that. So we want to evolve that experience too, right? So I think the, the worst part about Kubernetes for a lot of people is writing large YAML files, right? Like yeah. there's no way, you know, outside of the elephant in the room is the YAML manifest. And we've built a tool, an abstraction layer on top of Kubernetes internally that we call DOCC. Uh, and this has been talked about a few times out in the community. It basically, it boils down to very simple JSON files with very sane defaults for organization, and it talks directly to the Kubernetes API server. So it translates and makes all the requests it needs to, but you can basically take this tiny uh, JSON manifest, you know, put your image, your app name, what, all that stuff. Uh, you can opt into you know, being Prometheus metrics right out of the box. You can opt into you know, Let's Encrypt or whatever we use for TLS load balancing, and it's all done through this tiny little JSON manifest. So there's always been rumblings of open sourcing that but maybe one day we'll actually build that into the product, some form of that, right? Where we can help provide sane defaults so folks don't have to use those manifests with JSON all the time. And it could be more of like a choose your own adventure where you pull in the right pieces for the components. So. Yeah, I'm sure that, that would make a lot of people very happy because our experience uh, generally was, so it's super stable. We never used anything better, but it comes at the cost. Hmm. We have, you know, years of building a distributed system. So we know that the network, you know, will fail you, you know, many, many, many times and all about, you know, uh, retries and timeouts and all the things that you have to worry about. But when we came to Kubernetes world, at some point we just had maybe a month, month and a half setback, you know, mm. in, our, in our timeline. Because we had to figure out all those retries, but at scale. So now it's not a couple of services, but it's maybe 20 plus services that are talking together. And there are so many connections. So we just had to bring the Istio in, you know, yep. learn <laughs> that, you know, the hard way from scratch to just get those retries in place and timeouts and all that. If we weren't, uh, you know, in this distributed system building world for a couple of years, I think that I would be, you know, very unhappy <laughs> about all these things that we have to deal with. So yeah, just one tiny abstraction layer more, <laughs> which would help, you know, developers is still missing. So yeah, if you can guys do something about it, you know, that, that would be great. <laughs> we always say that, you know, Kubernetes solves a lot of problems, but it also introduces a whole nother set of problems, right? So yeah, yeah. Luckily, some people are, you know, a few steps in front of us. <laughs> so we just, you know, import Istio and, and, and use it. The power of open source. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really it is. 
Yeah. Okay, so before moving on, we have uh, another question. So it says, um, I agree, setting up a Kubernetes cluster on DigitalOcean is very easy. The only thing I have issues with it expires after seven days. So you have to have it from scratch each week. Okay, that's one is for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure for GA we have, um, I can't remember what the concept's called, but it's tokens, so you can issue actual security and API tokens inside Kubernetes. So we're building first-class support for that. I don't think that has to be refreshed every seven days. I'm honestly not too plugged into that feature. As a stopgap, you could pull down the manifest, you could pull down the cube config from the API. So there's an endpoint where you can actually download the config and that could be a step in your build. I know it's not the best, but like right now it's a step in your build pipe could be to, you know, use our DOCTL command line tool or to even just curl it with, you know, your DigitalOcean API key and pull down the most current cube config from the endpoint. So that should hopefully get you past that trouble until we can actually ship the proper token support. Yeah, yeah. Being able to connect very quickly is also something. I have a laptop, one iMac, other iMac, you know, and I just need to jump in into some cluster from time to time. Yeah. And okay, so just going in, copying a single line, pasting it in terminal to connect is a great thing. Yeah. So you mentioned about uh, compute part that you focused on for years. I always had fun, you know, discovering those names that you have, <laughs> like uh, droplets and uh, spaces and all other ones. I think that somewhere in the beginning of this year, there was a blog post about announcing, you know, a couple of areas that you guys are working on. And I think one of those were like uh, databases. Mm. Can you maybe share a bit what's coming up in like 2019? And yeah. Totally. We're, uh, we're pretty open with our roadmap. Every January, our VP of product, Shiv, uh, will write up a blog post about what our roadmap looks like for this year. And so, you know, we're, we're very transparent. We want community feedback there. So managed databases, we shipped, it was either February or March. It was very recently. And that is, you know, our take on database as a service. And we wanted, you know, we heard from developers out in the community that they don't want to manage a database. You know, they don't want to have yeah. to deal with updates and backups. And um, so we abstract all that away. Uh, right now, we give you a Postgres cluster. Uh, the pricing is pretty straightforward, pretty cheap. You can add up to two highly available nodes. So you have, you know, full HA, and then you can add read-only nodes in different regions that can all talk to each other. You can add, uh, you can fork your database. So it will, you know, give you a production copy of your data. Um, some folks use that for, you know, running migrations. And you can do blue-green deployments on that if you want with just your, you know, forking a database. Uh, and we handle backups, we handle upgrades for you. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's our first shot at it. Uh, we're definitely looking for community feedback. On the roadmap there, we have uh, Redis and MySQL coming up. Uh, and then we've uh, talked about doing Apache Kafka. So question in the, the chat is, do you have a plan to provide a NoSQL database? Redis is probably the closest we'll get there, along with Kafka, if we make it that far. I think we wanted to do MongoDB, but the the licensing changes there kind of um, mm. had us, you know, we have to reconsider and really look into how to handle all that the right way. So those are the ones that we've, you know, said we're, we're coming out with so far. Yeah. I mean, managing databases is probably something that very, very, you know, few people really want to do. <laughs> so uh, I think it's a huge thing when you don't have to worry about that. I mean, it was always for us, you know, the part that we were most scared of. I remember early days when 
there was a single Postgres instance running on a single physical machine. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you're kind of just uh, waiting every week for something bad to happen that you will not know how to, how to get out of that. So anyone, you know, someone managing that for you is a huge thing, definitely. Yeah. I have, a, I have a quick story I'll share. So we, we sponsored PostgresConf out in New York like two or three weeks ago, you know, to kind of like uh, support the Postgres community and, and share and market our product. Uh, it was kind of our breakthrough into the database community as a whole. Uh, my hypothesis was it wasn't really going to be a fit um, audience-wise. Turned out to be pretty correct. The main reasoning is if you have like a Venn diagram of, you know, people who would use managed Postgres and then mm -hmm. people who would go to PostgresConf, <laughs> that overlap is so tiny because yeah. people that are going to PostgresConf want to tune every knob, right? They want to get the most performance. They don't want to manage product. They want to be able to optimize the heck out of their database. So, you know, in terms of thinking about, like, what conferences and things to support with DevRel, it was a great experiment for us. But, like, that's something you have to take into account is, like, what is the audience? You know, who's going to be there? What do those folks look like? Yeah, they're yeah. more more interesting when you need to expand your team. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the place to go. Yeah. Okay, and the, yeah, yeah, you answered the question about noise. So uh, Redis and uh, potentially uh, Kafka. Okay. Okay, so kind of those those are the questions that that I wanted to ask. Yeah, is there anything that I should have asked, <laughs> or that you maybe wanted to share? Um, no, nothing particularly. Uh, we're we're hiring some pretty cool roles right now. Uh, we do a lot of Go internally. I think some highlights, we're hiring someone to run our, our Hatch, which is our startup program. Mm -hmm. So if anyone out there is interested in taking on uh, leadership of our, our startup program, feel free to hit me up or you know, I'm just at Eddie Zane on, on Twitter. Uh, and we're also hopefully opening a role very soon for our developer advocate focused on Hatch. So we'll have someone on the DevRel team working with startups. So if any of these, those things sound interesting to folks. <laughs> yeah, you know where to find Eddie. Okay, so one, one additional question. I built a Goat service that updates config for now. Use the Ocean API and right. SAM CLI for now. Okay, so here is a user which is using both Semaphore and, <laughs> and DigitalOcean. Good to know that you're working on a solution. Okay, great. Feel so, your pain. We'll pass the feedback along. Hopefully, we ship token support very soon. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Well, it was great talking to you. I learned quite a bit about, you know, the journeys of DevRel people and what are some best practices and so on. Thank you, Eddie. See you. Thank you so much for having me, man. This was great. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers, guys.